Now, again, a good question for Acts, uh, because, of course, Acts is principally descriptive. And lots of people get in, into lots of trouble saying that what happens in Acts has to happen to us. Okay. Um, though I don't seem... <laughs> I don't see many people getting lining up to get stoned in the old sense of the word. Okay, good. So uh, Acts two, Acts two. So so uh, Peter, under the power of the Spirit, uh, preaches this uh, great sermon that climaxes by saying, uh, "You know, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." And and it is a great sermon. And it's declaring, in a sense, uh, the beginning of the age to come with the outpouring of the Spirit as the evidence of God's exaltation of Jesus to his right hand. Now, they are understandably disturbed by this. You would be disturbed by this if somebody came and said to you, you have just participated in killing God's beloved, his only son. This is the God, remember, who destroyed Jerusalem, who, right? Now, they had no doubt about God's judgment. No, they say, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off. Now notice the elements that go together there. Repentance, baptism, forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit. Notice what's not mentioned and this relates to that long quote Faith. Faith is mentioned in other places, but plainly baptism here is an expression of faith. In fact, it's an expression of the faith that precedes repentance because they've actually believed his word. So repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now that is a sign of repentance, isn't it? That is a complete U-turn because before they were saying Jesus is a liar and a cheat, and he deserves to die, now they're actually being baptised into his name. That is, they are coming to belong to him. They're giving their loyalty to him. They're actually going to rely on him to rescue them from God's judgement. Now that is a complete U-turn. But that's what kind of baptism indicates in all our lives. Uh, we'll get to that. I'm not going to Develop that from the description, but, but from the way it's used in the epistles. Right? Complete U-turn, everyone, and it's in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So it's a commitment uh, that Jesus is the one who exalted, has authority to judge and forgive. So that's what they do when they're baptising. They're entrusting themselves into his hands and they're committing themselves to follow him, to do what he says, not just to forgive, but to be the one Peter has just proclaimed him to be. That is the Lord who can give the Holy Spirit. Now that means that Jesus is the one who can include them in the new people of God, the people of God who will inherit the new heaven and the new earth, the new covenant people of God, because they are the people, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, to whom the Spirit is promised. Okay? So it's a big, it's a very big statement, but all that comes and is seen through repentance and baptism or repentance and faith. 
Now, I'm going to run through these before we, we get to the conclusion because there are points of interest. Uh, and as a sign of reception of the word, verse 41, uh, they were baptised. So, you notice that it's immediate, that day. And that's what we'll see uh, throughout. So, Acts 8, 12, 16, Samaritan are baptised when they believe Philip's gospeling. They're baptised into the name of Jesus. And in this case, it precedes the gift of the Spirit. So, it's not always uh, uniform. In Acts, the second evidence is the uh, baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, worth recognising, no long period of preparation for this. Uh, no... Um, uh, you know, deferment. Well, you know, you see whether the person's genuine. It's believed baptizing is definitely baptism into water because he says, see, here's water. What's to stop me from being baptized? Right, Acts uh, 10. Now, again, this is a very interesting uh, one uh, because uh, here uh, Cornelius receives uh, the Spirit and... Uh, then he's baptised. Now, some people... Now, now that tells you one thing, doesn't it? It tells you that Peter plainly thought baptism important. It wasn't enough for him to say, they got the spirit, everything's okay. They got the reality, let's move on. They got the spirit and he says, baptised. Now, now some people try and minimise the significance of this by saying, oh, Acts 11, they don't... They don't uh, object to him being baptised. No, they say, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's what they object to. But actually, they're eating with them. They're enjoying table fellowship on the basis of their inclusion and cleansing. Because when Peter starts to explain it, the voice from heaven said, what God has made clean, do not call common. You see, and what is the gift of the Spirit and then baptism saying? God has made clean. And actually they're receiving the sign that they are cleansed and included through faith in Jesus. That's why those two things go together. And it's on that basis that they eat. Right. So yes, they don't say, oh, you did wrong in baptising them. They actually say, you did wrong in accepting the consequences of God's cleansing, which is actually symbolised in baptism. So baptism is actually quite significant uh, in this very significant event. And it is because he's the first Gentile uh, to actually come into the community of God's people. Okay. And then, uh, of course, we have Lydia and uh, the Philippian jailer. Uh, again, uh, notice uh, the immediacy. Uh, they uh, preach uh, the gospel and... Uh, 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 there was Lydia, this is 16, uh, uh, 14, 15. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul and after she was baptised in her household as well, she urged us saying so. So she's baptised with her household and in Acts uh, 16, the Philippian jailer is baptised at once. So he doesn't even wait for daytime. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptised at once, he and all his family. After, uh, you know, he'd said, what do I have to do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and all your household. And he is baptised at once. And then 18.8, uh, 
and we'll need to think about this when we get to 1 Corinthians because some people will say in chapter 1 Paul is kind of denigrating baptism. Well, listen to Acts 18a. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptised. Again, they come to be included. Now, Acts 19, I just want to pause about this because this is a... Uh, a bit of a puzzling one. So if you open your Bibles at Acts 19, uh, verse uh, 1, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now notice that. Those things go together. Believing, receiving the Holy Spirit. The apostles expect them to go together when they don't, they, in a sense, make up for it. So they, they, the Samaritans didn't get the Spirit. They sent the apostles down. They laid hands on them. They received the Spirit. Those things are seen to go to Spirit. So he says, that he twigs that something's not quite right with them. That's why he asks the question, Do you, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Because if they're Jesus followers, the answer to that is always going to be yes. Right, and they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now that, of course, sends complete alarm bells through the Apostle Paul and he's thinking, what kind of disciples are these? And, and they, he said, into, then, into what then were you baptised? And that's the disciples' question. Whose name have you been baptised? Who have you committed yourself to following? Who are you dependent on? Well, they said John's baptism. Now, at that point, Paul then preaches them the gospel and he preaches it from their starting point, their experience of John and what John had said. John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. You see, it is not, as some claim, the one movement. Some people want to say it's the one messianic movement, followers of John and followers of Jesus. No, it's actually not. John is anticipatory. He is preparatory. Jesus is the fulfilment, right? It's the difference between a prophet and God. That's a really big difference. Right? Responding to a prophet and actually coming to belong to the living God. And uh, so that's what happens. They do. They get baptised into Jesus' name. There's no kind of rebaptism here, which is a uh, which is a question in Christian theology, because they never had Christian baptism. Right? Seen by lack of the Spirit. Okay. So and then of course we have the last one is Paul recounting his Damascus experience. Uh, be baptised and, and wash away your sins. It's a, For those of you who are aware of the debate, that's a permissive middle, be baptised. Anyhow, you can... If you're unaware of the debate, don't worry about the English translations, fine. Or wash away your sins, calling upon his name. Right, and so the action is symbolic of washing away on the basis of the appeal to God. Now, I've got a long quote there uh, from... Somewhere in my notes, which I'll find. And I, no, I've got it. I've got it here. Yeah, thanks. I've got more. 
Right. A, a long quote there uh, uh, from this bloke called Lane from that book, Baptism, Three Views. And, and I've got the quote because actually this is a, a, a credo-baptist, a pedo-baptist and Lane, and actually they all agree on his summary of what's happening in Acts. So I thought, this is safe. Right. Uh, Fourteen passages uh, uh, narrate how evangelists tell inquirers how to respond or provide a reasonably full account of the conversion of a personal group. He says, in Acts, we've got these 14 passages that tell people, in a sense, what they have to do to be saved, what they have to do to become Christians. If we look at these passages and ask what was expected to happen, we find four things that repeatedly occur. Repentance, faith, baptism and reception of the Holy Spirit. All four are not mentioned every time, but a clear fourfold pattern emerges. Faith is mentioned ten times. Apart from Peter's address in Acts 3, which the police interrupt, the only place where faith is missing is in two accounts of Paul's conversion, though it may safely be assumed that his conversion did involve faith. Baptism is also mentioned ten times. The exceptions, including the incomplete sermon in Acts, the other omissions, are Acts 15, 7-9, referring to the conversion of Cornelius, who was in fact baptised, the Sermon on Mars Hill, and Paul's account of his own teaching in Acts 20. Now this picture coheres with what we see in the rest of the New Testament, where faith and baptism are like the cliched two sides of a coin. Baptism is a part of Christian initiation by which people become Christians. But this is not baptism without faith. For the New Testament writers, faith means faith confessed in baptism. And baptism means, uh, means is perhaps not the right word, but baptism as a confession of faith. They thought of faith and baptism as a unity, not just on theoretical grounds, but because in actual practice they came together. What we see in Acts is not believers' baptism, but converts' baptism. And that's actually a very helpful insight. Uh, people are baptised at their point of conversion. Baptism is clearly seen as part of the initial response to the Gospel in Acts. Baptism was an essential part of Christian initiation. People were baptised immediately on their conversion. It wasn't left to the conscience of the individual believer. It was not delayed until the convert's genuineness was proved. Instead, it was part of the Gospel message so in his epistles, Paul can assume that his readers have all been baptised. And that is actually the way most people read those references uh, to baptism in Paul's letters. Now, uh, what's happened in a sense with the crumbling of Christendom is that the model of Acts has been recovered as the model of baptism. That is the normative model. You repent, believe, you get baptised. Believers are baptised. Now, plainly, it doesn't address all questions. You don't have any second-generation believers. What happens to the children of believers? Uh, now, there may be suggestions in Acts, we'd say, of household baptisms. And if you think uh, communally like the Jews, you'd think actually that's probably, probably what happened. As Lane goes on to say, the, the issue of children... It was not a late issue. He says 3,000 people got converted and he says the promises to you and to your children and all who are far off, they had children. It was actually an immediate issue. But the New Testament is kind of pretty silent on it. 
though children are included in Christian congregations in Ephesians and Colossians, we have that model of family baptism. And that's where uh, things, uh, Christians in a sense, divide, especially since about the 16th century. Now, you may not realise that, but it's actually only from the 16th century that uh, credo baptism, that is, believers' baptism, you can only be baptised on a credible profession of faith, uh, has actually taken root. We assume that that's normative because we think it's like what happens in the Book of Acts and we are committed individualists. But actually, it's not... For 1,600 years, it was not normative. Right? And for most of the life of the church, even the last few hundred years, it has not been normative. Right? It was assumed that the faith of your parents would be your faith. Now, the testimony of the early church is probably that they're always, while it may not have been universal, really from the earliest children were being baptised. The most... The least likely scenario is that they didn't baptise their children at all. It is the least likely scenario. You can't prove it was universal. Second and third centuries, because people started to believe that there was no forgiveness after baptism, some writers like Tertullian started to urge people to delay baptising their children, which you can understand if you think there's no forgiveness after baptism and you think that kid's going to grow up like me. Uh, you think, I oh, should probably be wise to put it off, okay? Right? But, 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 that, but, but that actually testifies to the fact that people were baptising the children. And, and there's debate. So one of the Gregories said, actually, advise wait till three where they can actually know a little bit again. That testifies to the fact that people were baptising their children younger than three. And I'm not entirely sure what a three-year-old knows. But, uh, you know, so, so, so the, the, the position of Acts... Does, does not address all our questions. What do we do with children? But it is the normative model. Believe, repent, believe, baptise, get the Spirit. Right? Those things go together. Always expected because, as Paul says in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. And that, that's the model that's established. Okay. Now, uh, how do, do do people think about baptism? What what do they think uh, baptism becomes a sign of? What what is baptism communicating about what it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what we see developed in the epistles. Okay, you ready? Good. Okay, you can write down those questions if you have them, and we'll start. We're just going through in order. And so this is a passage uh, we um, uh, we uh, look at a lot. Uh, we 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 read often. So Romans six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, so what Paul is doing is using the sign, the external sign of baptism to help people understand the reality of repentance and faith in Christ. 
right? So, so, so that they'll see that believing in Jesus is inconsistent with going on in sin. That's the issue. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, how is that possible? Right? Because this is actually what your baptism into Jesus meant. Trusting Jesus means that you have been united with him in his death. So you can actually think of your baptism as a complete break from the past, as burial. You were buried with him through baptism into his death. And that's the point. There's no coming back from burial, is there? I just want to test that, test the reality. Is there, do you hang about at cemeteries after funerals? Thinking, I'll just wait. Another ten minutes, Uncle Fred will need a lift back to the wake. Right? No, you probably don't do that, do you? Right? It's a complete break with the past. Okay? And that's that's the point. And if you're completely broken with the past, where's your life now? Your life is lived with Christ in the power of the Spirit. You live to please God. How can you think? It's entirely inconsistent to think of going on in sin that Christ may abound. It shows you haven't understood what it is to be a Christian, to live in repentance and faith in Jesus. Okay. Now the next uh, passage is, uh, is 1 Corinthians. And again, some people have taken this uh, to mean that Paul denigrates uh, uh, physical uh, baptism, right? Uh, Frey reading from verse uh, 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised into the name of Paul? Okay, so you see the problem. The problem is division and people aligning themselves with kind of authorities, uh, people who, in a sense, by being associated with, they can increase their prestige. And they seem to be conferring this on the person who baptised them. So it, they're using it to uh, promote their own worldly divisions. He says, I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, early converts, so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. Now, this is a later providential thank you, God. I thank, thank God that I actually, you know, delegated that to Silas and Timothy. Uh, I did baptise also the household of Stephanas. I can't remember oh, because I'm not really fussed about baptism. You're making a fuss about it, but I'm not because Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. I think what we've got to see is that Paul's statements about baptism there are not statements about the absolute value of baptism, uh, but uh, a kind of rhetoric, and there's actually quite a lot of rhetoric in chapters 1 to 4 where he's saying he doesn't employ rhetoric like other people uh, to actually help them think differently about what really matters. And what really matters are not the things they might divide over about who baptised who, but actually the one gospel of our Lord Jesus that humbles us all. And that will come up again. So Fee says, in saying Christ did not send me to baptise, Paul does not intend to minimise Christian baptism. His use of the imagery in Romans 6 would forever make uh, rule this out. The reason for expressing his own calling in this negative way has been dictated by the nature of the argument. And, and that is true. Uh, a sardonic rebuke, as says somebody, of the Corinthians' proclivity to personality-centred division. Right? Uh, it, it's, it's not really a statement of, of baptism. 
Okay. Now, now the uh, the next uh, two, not particularly Im important, uh, he talks about being baptised into Moses by analogy uh, with Christian baptism. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptised into one body, is, I think, one of the seven references to baptism in the spirit. It's the Lord Jesus who does the baptising. The medium in which he baptises you in the spirit is taking the language of John, which is repeated in Acts, and he's applying it here to say that it's actually the common gift of the spirit that unites all believers into one body. Right, but Galatians 3 uh, 27, I think, is a reference uh, to baptism. As many of us were baptised into Christ Jesus and put on Christ. Again, it's this notion of union with Christ, that you are clothed with Jesus through repentance and faith in him, and that that has consequences for your relationship with each other. And again, Ephesians, uh, when it talks about the things that we have in common, one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, I don't think that is talking about baptism in the Spirit. I think that is actually talking about the baptism where we confess our faith in one God, Father, Son and Spirit. And that actually uh, unites us. Now, there's probably not enough context to be able to argue that definitively, but actually that's been the way it's been taken through most of church history. One faith, one baptism. We confess that one faith in the one baptism uh, which we have uh, once uh, for all. Uh, Colossians 2, again, uh, speaks of baptism in terms of our union uh, with Christ. Uh, so you'll come to fullness in him in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So it's actually saying that the divisions of the old age between the circumcised and uncircumcised uh, no longer matter uh, because we're actually united with Jesus in his death. The circumcision, that's the circumcision that Christ does. And that is reinforced by saying, <coughs> having been buried with him in baptism. Right, again, you die with him, you are buried. A baptism is a sign of your union with Christ in his death, principally, and in his rising, and as such it marks your complete break with the old way of life. You are buried uh, with him in baptism, in whom also... Uh, in which or in whom you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And then there's uh, the difficult passage of 1 Peter 3, uh, which speaks about uh, baptism as, in a sense, equivalent. Uh, well, it's actually hard to know whether what is it, it is the equivalent to. But possibly uh, to, in a sense, the ark that takes you through the waters of judgment and lifts you out of death, right? Not as a physical act, the washing of the body, but the appeal of a clean conscience based on the resurrection of Jesus. So it's actually faith in Jesus that saves you. And you can ask me about that later. But let's just have the summary and then uh, let's have some questions. So... 
what, in a sense, is baptism uh, a sign of? Uh, from our survey, it is uh, plain, right, uh, that participation in baptism indicates a believing response to the gospel, repentance and faith. But our repentance is not primarily what baptism is a sign of. It, it speaks of our participation in the sign and why we participate in the sign, but it actually doesn't speak of the reasons it was given by God to us as a sign. Now, that's, that's actually important. You don't want to confuse the reason for undergoing something with what it is actually a sign of. Okay? So we undergo baptism because of repentance and faith, so it speaks of our repentance and faith. But what we see in the epistles uh, that that is baptism as a sign of something bigger. Uh, baptism as a sign from our Lord Jesus, given to us by Jesus, signifies the truth of the gospel, uh, which those who have faith in the gospel receive. So what are those truths that we've actually seen with our very quick survey of those uh, references which you can go back over? Uh, okay, so the, what, what, what do we receive through believing the gospel that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and is risen? Well, union with Christ in his death and resurrection. And, and with being united with Christ, we get everything. Uh, but it's a union that points us not just to our Christian beginning, but also to our end, being raised with Christ. Paul goes on to speak about that in Romans 6. And so, so that's actually a, very important in the sense it's a sign of everything involved in conversion, in becoming a Christian. No, the focus in Paul in Romans 6 and Colossians 2 is on death. Union with Christ, dying to the old way of life. But at this level, baptism then also becomes a reminder and a pattern of the pattern of the Christian life, which is dying and coming alive, dying and coming alive. So it's a sign of union with Christ through faith in Jesus and a sign of the life we now live through being united to Jesus. Uh, baptism is also a sign of forgiveness of sins, a cleansing from everything, all those sins and iniquities that defile us, and make us unsuitable for God's uh, presence. You see that, Acts 2, Paul, Acts 22. Now this is the benefit of the gospel, and so baptism speaks of the efficacy of the gospel, and baptism is a sign of this for the whole of life and can always be returned to for assurance, right? Uh, and this is what Jesus does for us when we trust him. He cleanses us. And it's on these grounds that we reject any need uh, for uh, any other sacrament of forgiveness like penance in the Catholic Church because we're forgiven by faith in Jesus. We are cleansed uh, once and for all. And notice it speaks there of assuring. Now that's why we speak of baptism as a sign and a seal uh, using the language that Paul used of circumcision in uh, Romans 4. So so, uh, sorry, Abraham was already forgiven, you know, already justified by faith. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Paul said, but then he got circumcision. So what was circumcision? It was a seal of the righteousness he already had by faith. Now, what does a seal do? You write a letter. Here you are in the ancient world. You write a letter. You put your name on it, Paul. 
See with what large letters I write my hand, right? Right? And then you wrap it up. And what extra confidence can you give the recipient that it comes from you? You put your seal on it, your wax seal. So a seal is something that gives you extra confidence that it comes from the author. So when we talk about baptism as a seal, we are saying it's something given to you by Jesus which you can in a sense experience to give you extra confidence that what he's promised to you, that you'll be forgiven, united to him, given his spirit, that what he's promised he'll do for you. right? And it works like that because it engages the whole person, at least if you're baptised by immersion. It engages the whole person and it's something you remember. If you get baptised by me, that's why I hold you under. Okay? Just to remember, there's nothing like a near-death experience. Right? It's very biblical, right? But that's actually what it's about. Sign and seal. Sign of forgiveness, cleansing, and assuring you that you are actually forgiven by the Lord Jesus and welcomed into his family. Now, because it's a sign of forgiveness, it's also a sign that you're included in the new covenant people of God because what's the great blessing of the covenant? I will forgive their iniquities and remember their sins no more. That is the great blessing of the new covenant. So it's a sign that you're included in the new covenant uh, people of God. So it signifies entry through faith in the gospel into the new humanity separated from the old by the waters of death. So it's a communal expression of being joined to Christ because as we're joined to Christ, we are become his people. And because it's external and visible, it's also a sign that you're included in the visible people of God, that you are welcome amongst them on the basis of faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done for you through faith. Forgiven you, united him to him, adopted you. Uh, God's adopted you as his child through union with Christ. So it's actually a pretty powerful and helpful sign and an assuring sign, and it speaks of the gospel, right? So it is something we do. So, so uh, yeah. Now, just finally, so you can only see baptism as a work somehow supplementary to being justified by faith if you think Jesus has not commanded it, right? Because repentance and faith are inseparable and faith is always visibly expressed. This is just the beginning of the visible expression of faith seen in doing what Jesus says. And it makes clear on what basis we start the Christian life and the shape of the ongoing Christian life. It makes clear on what basis we're included in God's people and have access to him and on what basis we're included in the new covenant, Jesus. Only Jesus, complete dependence on Jesus. Our righteousness is his righteousness. Our cleansing is his by his blood. So it's actually a great gift to us. And we should be thankful that we see conversion baptism here because it keeps us honest. Okay, It tells us actually what baptism is even while we muddle away at what we do with the children of believers. Any questions?